See how many kids are not on vacation today. The stampede is a little bit less. Yeah. Um, so I have the, my name's Tony. If we haven't met, I have the pleasure of being on pastoral staff. Uh, Anne is one of our longtime prayer warriors. And um, we wanted to just do a quick, I don't know, one of the really tricky things about being a pastor in a historical moment like ours is with some regularity at this point, there are fairly large upheavals that are happening. And I feel like there is some way that we need to say something about them. Not always. Um, but in the last few days, right, one of arguably the most controversial and longest standing, I don't know, probably not longest standing, but an incredibly loaded law in uh, Roe versus Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. And over the last few days, I have been struck by the various reactions in our body. Some people are celebrating and excited, and other people are really afraid. And I'm just watching in this moment, right? I'm not a political philosopher. I am not a legal scholar. I do not understand the Constitution well enough to weigh in to whether this is a good or bad decision legally. But I think as a pastor, what's clear to me is that we're in a season where there are all kinds of political things that happen that have implications on the ground in our body. And I guess my invitation to us is threefold. One, what does it look like for us to maintain unity in a season when in this room, there is a spectrum of responses to this. And what does it look like to care and love for one another, listening to one another in this season? Two, I think every time these upheavals happen, it creates all kinds of, I think, potential for the church to really be this beautiful example of God's love in this world. And so I think my invitation to you, whether you're jubilant or afraid, is to prayerfully discern what is your and your family's response, right? We have an opportunity to be the witnesses of God's love on earth. What does it look like now that this has happened? What, do we, what does it look like for us to do, to respond? And then three, and I think that this is especially true, whether you're celebrating or afraid, to be a people who turn to God in prayer, Right, that we are all in this room not because we're Republicans or Democrats, pro-life or pro-choice. We are here because Jesus is our Lord. And we're in this place to worship Him and trust in Him. And that's why Anne and I are up here, because I wanted Anne to just pray for us and pray for our country uh, as a body, right? That in our joy and maybe in our sadness. We are a people who turn to God in prayer. You mind taking it from here? Okay. Let me make sure that's on. Yeah, you're good. Three. That I'm especially aware of in um, all of this is that within families, there are many differences of opinion. So I would imagine if you've had contact with any family members and discussed this, um, there would be differences in how you look at the issues involved in this whole thing. So it isn't just um, grief or jubilance, but also just kind of a sadness that goes along with everything that's happening in the world right now. So it really seems to compound 
um, the emotions that we might be feeling right now. So it's an important time of just turning to the Lord and praying, um, looking to him for, to know what to say to people, how to respond in a loving way. So, Father, we just come to you humbly, knowing that we can't solve these issues, no matter how angry we might be or sad or afraid. Help us, Lord, to depend on you for all that we need to be an example of who you are, Lord Jesus, and how you would respond in these situations that grieve us and make us unhappy and can cause even conflict within family members, Lord. Give us patience and love for one another. Help us to be able to listen with ears and heart that understand the feelings that are being expressed. We do thank you and praise you, Lord, that we can look to your word. We can have comfort from depending on you for all that we need as we face all the issues that are before us right now. Thank you, Lord, that we have such a strong church family that we can depend on and be open with and share um, the things that w might be on our minds and our heart today. We look forward to what you have for us for the future, Lord. Let us be joyful. Let us rejoice in you, but keep our hearts open to love and care about our neighbors and our friends and our family members. In your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ian. You can take, want to take that to Jackson in the back? Um... Transitions are always tricky, so I'm just going to go for it. Um, so uh, we've been traveling through the Old Testament for a while now, and uh, the last few weeks we've been in the Holy Spirit, sort of trying to figure out what does that look like? How do we work, partner with the Holy Spirit? And this week we're back to the Old Testament. Uh, we're actually starting 2 Samuel 1. Um, and then we're going to do this through the beginning of August, and then at the end of August, we're going to be in Mark for most of this next year, which I'm really excited for. Uh, 2 Samuel 1. I'm just going to dive right in. It centers around the death of Saul and Jonathan, so this is David's best friend and his best friend's dad, who also happens to be the king that's trying to kill him. So... If you didn't get that complexity, we'll get into it a little bit more. 2 Samuel 1 begins with David returning from a battle with the Amalekites. Um, he is in a place called Ziglag, which is in southern Judah, uh, south of Jerusalem. And so he's just coming from this battle with the Amalekites, right? Probably taking off his armor, setting down his sword. And at this moment, an Amalekite, walks into his camp with dirt on his head and torn clothes. Now, just to sort of enter into this for a second, if someone walks in to the church today with dirt on their head and torn clothes, what do you think? Hard night, right? <laughs> in David's day, this has other symbolic connotations. Torn clothes, 
Right? So in ancient Israel, in the ancient Near East, clothes and the tearing of them were a way to communicate an internal emotional reality to the gathered community. Right? Just as one tears one's clothes, it's a way to externally represent that your heart has been torn. Dirt on the head. Right? Genesis 2, humans are made out of dirt. Right? Then you have the fall, and then God says in Genesis 3.19 that humans, right, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the Amalekite walks in with Tor's clothes, shows a torn heart. He has dust on his head to say, someone he knows just returned. Now David, though, doesn't really know who this guy is. Is he mourning the Amalekites that he just killed in battle? Or is it something else? So David asks the guy, hey, hey one, what are you doing here and what happened? And this guy explains that he came from a battle where Saul and Jonathan died. Now, obviously, this is really personal for David. This isn't just a national announcement. Hey, the king and the prince are dead. He has known Saul since he was a boy. Remember, he played, uh, he, would, he did a part-time job share thing, right, where he would watch the sheep and then he'd go play the harp for Saul as a boy. And even that time when he fought Goliath right before, remember Saul offered, hey, try my armor on. But not every time as a young boy when he was with Saul was it all rosy. One time when he was playing a harp, Saul grabbed a spear in the midst of, whether it's a bipolar episode or something, and he tried to kill David with it. Later on in his life, Saul was the person who was hunting him. Why? David has been hiding in the wilderness now for a few years. Likely, David's response is a little complex. On one level, he's known this guy since he was a kid, right? His best friend is Jonathan. You don't become best friends with the prince unless you're hanging out at the king's house a lot. Right? That's how you become best friends with the prince. You're chilling on the couch in the palace. Saul's walking around, fist bumps, high fives, whatever. You get to know him. But this is more than just Saul's death. This is his best friend's death, too. Right? Jonathan, the guy, when his dad was trying to kill David, he's shielding and protecting and helping David at the risk of his own life, his own inheritance, his own prestige, consistently going out of his way to help his best friend. And on top of this, the king and the prince have just died. This is a national tragedy. I remember how everyone in our country responded after September 11th. It was this moment of everyone was like, how could this happen? That's how you feel when your king is killed and probably amped up a notch or two. National humiliation, sadness. And with all of this, with the death of Saul, now David maybe feels even a little relief. Finally, I don't have to live in a cave. 
I can have my own palace. You know, a bathroom. So it's all this going on inside David. So he wants more details. So he asked the Amalekite, so, so what happened here? Verse 6. This is the Amalekite's explanation. By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, I feel a little bit like Sherlock Holmes doing this, because there's some significant clues here that you might not pick up on a first reading. Clue number one, verse six. By chance, I happened on Mount Geboa. Okay. There is a war happening. You don't go for a stroll in the neighborhood. No one accidentally happens upon a battle where people are killing each other. You do not stroll into that. You run the other way. What this almost certainly means is that he is a scavenger or a looter. Robert Alter writes this. He's a Hebrew scholar. Does one accidentally stumble onto a battlefield while killing is still going on? A more likely scenario is that the Amalekite came onto the battlefield immediately after the fight as a scavenger. Moreover, the guy says that he is leaning on his spear and that chariots and horsemen were close upon him. This is our second clue that this guy is not telling the truth. Mount Gilboa is this notoriously hilly terrain. Chariots are really good at flats and roads. Horses are not taking chariots over this terrain. We also know from chapter 31, which also summarizes this event, that he, Saul was injured by a bow and arrow, and the weapon of charioteers is a spear. So now there's some inconsistencies starting to come to the surface. So this guy, he, quote-unquote, happens upon a battle in progress, and now King Saul calls out to him, he says. He's nearly dead, but he's not quite there. So he asks the man, verse 9, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. Essentially, Saul, what this guy is saying, is afraid that he is going to be publicly humiliated and maybe tortured by the opposing army. And there's probably resonance here, because if you flip back to chapter 31, uh, Paul do, Saul does ask his armor bearer to kill him so that he is not mistreated. Right? He's afraid that his body is going to be humiliated in front of all these people. But in chapter 31, the armor bearer says, no, I, I can't do it. Right? Like David, he's not going to kill the Lord's anointed. More likely what happens is the Amalekite, in the midst of his looting, scavenging, is watching what's going down. He's paying attention. So then he's able to sort of craft this story about the death of Saul. 
And then presumably, after Saul dies, he goes in there, grabs the crown and the armlet, and then he shows up at the camp with these things, torn clothes, dirt on the head, story crafted, and says, here you go. Now, the Amalekite, you kind of feel bad for him at this point, sort of, because he thinks he's going to be rewarded. He thinks David's going to be grateful. His arch enemy has just been killed. But he couldn't have been more mistaken. Verses 11 and 12. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted. Until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Right? David's first reaction isn't joy, but to tear his clothes as a symbol of his torn heart. And sure, Saul hasn't been the nicest guy to him. Certainly of late, he's trying to kill him. He's thrown a spear at him when he was a kid. But he's also known Saul for a long time in the palace. Saul happens to be his best friend's dad. And the Amalekite certainly couldn't have known that his best friend also died next to his father that day. My Jonathan has gone out of his way time and time again to care for David, to protect him, to help him. Right? And the king of Israel is now dead. So it makes sense, I think, that David tears his clothes. It makes sense that the men with him mourn, weep, and fast. Right? In the ancient Near East, these would have been customary ways to grieve. Other words would have included wailing, wearing sackcloth. Right? So sackcloth is kind of like this coarse material, often goat's hair, which was uncomfortable, and it was a reminder, again, to the gathered community of the discomfort of the person in grief. They'd see the sackcloth, and they'd be like, oh, that person's really suffering. And this is super important, but we skip over this, I think, a lot. Notice their mourning is communal. Right? They don't just go to their own huts, close the door, and say, leave me alone. They grieve together. And this is actually carried through modern Judaism as well. If you've ever had a friend who is Jewish, who's someone close to them has died, they often practice or sit Shiva together. Right? Shiva is the Hebrew word for seven. During this time, uh, you grief, you don't groom yourself, work, or distract yourself. Right? You focus on loss together. There's even a tradition called Kaddish, which is a community prayer so that one doesn't have to pray alone. The community sits with you and then prays with you as you grieve your loss. The text says that they do this until evening. And at some point, right after the morning weeping and fasting, David returns to this young Amalekite scavenger, you know, who's weaving a yarn and he is, you know, put himself in this really precarious position. 
David asks him, how is it that you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? See, David has twice had the opportunity to kill Saul, and he said, I can't do it. He is God's anointed. So this is a really good character question for David because he is stuck to this line. Maybe out of self-interest because he doesn't want people killing him. Maybe out of theological conviction. We don't know. And so because this man, right, the opportunist, the opportunist, says that he has killed the Lord's anointed, David actually has him executed right there. And then as the story unfolds in the second, in second Samuel 1, there's this shift from narrative to then David uh, writes this personal lament of grief that is both personal and national. And he, he says, hey, I want you guys to teach other people how to say this prayer. He wants them to be able to express their grief as well. Now, in the ancient Near East, uh, in funeral poems kind of like these, it was customary to speak really highly of the departed. I mean, kind of like our funerals, in a way. Like, usually you go to a funeral and people aren't, like, saying all the bad stuff. Usually it's, like, the best picture possible of the departed. Same here. David writes, verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and death they were not divided they were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold in your apparel. And David's like, man, these guys are united, which isn't totally true, right? They're lovely, swift, strong, right? In a warrior culture, it's like, man, you guys were awesome. And then he attributes the wealth of Israel to Saul's leadership, and he calls all of Israel to weep over Israel's loss for their king. And he also with deep sadness remembers his friend, verse 26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. You know, just to put this in context, often people read this and they wonder, did David and Jonathan have a sexual relationship? And I just want to answer this pretty clearly because I, I don't think that's at all what this text is saying for two reasons. One, this word love in Hebrew has zero uh, sexual connotations. And then two, uh, actually, especially warriors, but often men, had much more intimate and tight relationships than husbands and wives did in the ancient Near East. Again, Robert Alter, he writes this. The bond between men in this warrior culture could easily be stronger than the bond between men and women. In our culture, we don't often think that, but that would have been the default assumption in the ancient Near East. So David is almost certainly just giving voice to his deep loss of his best friend. That was the most important relationship in his life. So you have this story that has two major parts. One is narrative about Saul and Jonathan's death and prim primarily the response of David and his men. And then you have this poem written to express the sadness, the grief. 
And the question with a text like this is, what do you do with it? Right? How, do you, how do you apply a text like this into our context, you know, over 2,000 years later? How does this transition translate into our life together? And what I want to really focus on uh, is reading this. I was just struck by their response to grief and how together they were in it. Let's just look at this real quick. Right? When the looter appears in David's camp, his clothes are already torn. He already has dirt on his head. So everyone already knows why he's there. Something about mourning. Right? When David hears about his best friend and Saul, all of his men with him mourn, weep, fast, tear their clothes. Now this isn't what we do when we mourn, but all of them know this is how we respond when someone is in grief, when someone has suffered loss. I mean, it's pretty incredible if you think about it. No one was like, uh, yeah, that's not really my sort of thing. I'm like a warrior. I don't cry. You notice that? All of them weep. They mourn, weep, fast, tear their clothes. No one's like, this is Gucci, right? Like, it's getting ripped. My point is, then when it comes to grief in the ancient world, there were common agreements, set expectations of how do you care for someone who is grieving? And I think when we read a text like this, and begin to consider the common agreements of how we respond to grief, very few of us know what to do. In the media over the last number of years, um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh, pretty famous lady, she wrote The Stages of Grief, um, basically that there's these different stages, uh, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Ironically, the media picked this up but she never intended this to be universal and sequential. Uh, that was, she actually wrote later, like, she regretted writing the book the way she did because of the way the media and many of us have assumed that grief has to progress this certain way. So we have these assumptions that are actually not based in reality of grief that we think, oh, this is kind of what it looks like to grieve. C.S. Lewis, in A Grief Observed, uh, which is about his response to personal grief. The book he wrote said this. This is based out of his experience coming out of World War II. This is the analogy. Grief is like a bomber circling around and dropping bombs each time the circle brings it overhead. You're grieving at your house. You go shopping, and all of a sudden you wonder why you're weeping in the aisle or talking to the clerk. 